0: Hello, and welcome back to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to PhD student Margaret Lindemann about ocean warming. Margaret Lindemann is a PhD student at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Her research focuses on ice sheet ocean interactions in Greenland and how ocean currents bring warm water close to the ice sheet, affecting how fresh water flows into the ocean and affects ocean currents. We'll be talking about her research and its implications and ask her why you'd call her if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now welcome Margaret.
1: Margaret, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Colin.
1: So why don't we just start out and just give a short introduction about you and your research.
2: Sure. So. I am a PhD student at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, and I'm studying ice sheet ocean interactions. And I got into this topic because I was really interested in learning more about sea level rise and how we could better predict how much sea level is going to rise in the future. But I sort of wanted to come at it from the oceanography side. And so I do research in Greenland and fjords where glaciers uh, meet the ocean And it turns out that these are locations that are really important in setting kind of how much ice ends up in the ocean in the long run. So that's what I do. So I'm originally from New York, which although you might not think of it that way, is actually a coastal city. It's pretty close to sea level, close to the ocean. And then I went to college in Maine in another coastal area. And I didn't know about oceanography before I started, but I really quickly got excited about the idea of doing earth science because you get to be outside all the time to do your field work. in theory. And I was mm. taking an oceanography class where we learned about how the ocean related to climate. and One of the things that we learned was that the sea level rise projections that existed at that point, they didn't incorporate how the ice sheets were going to change and Everybody thought that was going to be one of the biggest drivers of sea level rise in the future, but it was so hard to predict how quickly that was going to happen that they just weren't able to incorporate those into the projections at all. And that really freaked hmm. me out being from New York and living in Maine and thinking about all the people in the world who live really close to the coast. And so. I was interested in climate change, and I was interested in oceanography, and I thought, okay, ice-ocean interactions, it's a way I can do field work in some really beautiful places and also study something that has a really big global impact.
1: Wonderful. So how how do you go about measuring ocean warming, and what's the term for it, ice?
2: Right. So what I've been saying is ice-ocean interaction. and
1: Ice-ocean interaction. Okay.
2: What we're talking about there is we're talking about ice that forms on land in places like Greenland and Antarctica. So these are basically big islands. You can think of Greenland as a big island in the North Atlantic Ocean. And the way that the ice forms on top of Greenland is actually by snow falling in the middle. And it builds up over time until you get many, many layers of snow. And it gets so thick that it actually just gets consolidated into ice. And so then it starts to flow out towards the edges of the island and when it gets there, it falls into the ocean. So it's actually really, you know, it's a simple idea. But it turns out that the dynamics of how that ice flows, how fast it flows, are really, really complicated. And what actually happens right at the edges of that island, are, it's really important um, in setting what happens all the way, what happens to all of the ice that's on land. And that's actually one of the main drivers of sea level rise is when ice that's been on land for a long time ends up in the ocean, it's not replaced, that basically you're adding more water to the ocean effectively.
1: And it's not being replaced because of broader trends in global warming.
2: Exactly. So you could have sea level rise from this process either because the ice is flowing into the ocean faster than it used to be and it's still, you know, snowing at the same rate or it could be the ice is still flowing at the same rate but now it's not snowing as much and i think with climate warming we kind of expect to see both of those things happen to some extent probably the ice will flow faster and probably it will snow less and that was you know in these old sea level rise projections all they could say was okay we think it's going to snow less but they couldn't say anything about how the ice flow is going to change but it's all about the balance between those two things
1: Yeah, it seems like it would be difficult to get a high-level picture of ocean warming due to the scale of the problem and the difficulty of measurement, like you're saying. What trade-offs do you make and how accurate is our overall understanding?
2: Well, before I jump into that question, I guess I should explain why ocean warming might actually even affect the flow of ice into the ocean in the first place. And so if you think about a narrow fjord or kind of a long inlet where these glaciers meet the ocean, so you have ocean flowing in sort of towards towards the ice sheet and you have the ice flowing out. And in a lot of these places, the ice ends up floating on top of the ocean. Because it's in this narrow channel, it sort of is getting pushed against the sides by the mountain, or you know, whatever rock is on the edges. And so you can think about it like a cork in the bottle. There's all of this ice that's kind of behind it. And as that ice is trying to flow out towards the ocean, it's like the stress between the cork and the glass the deck of the glass bottle. It's it's sort of doing a similar thing. So it's holding back all of the ice behind it that's trying to flow out. Mm. And if you suddenly have the ocean underneath that ice get a lot warmer and the part of the ice that's floating suddenly melts, it's kind of like you took the cork out of the bottle. Wow. And so when we then are sort of interested in measuring the ocean warming and how it might be affecting that, there's sort of a lot of different scales of measurements that might be useful. And that is what makes it really challenging, like you suggested. Um, So you might be interested in whether the ocean is warming far away. And so that means that the water that's coming into that channel in the first place might be warmer than it used to be. But you also might be interested in whether there's a difference in how the water within that fjord is mixing around and how much of, you know, which water is actually touching the ice in that last, you know, that last step. And so there are these really smaller scale processes as well as big global trends that all play a role in this. So it's a very
1: tricky. It's incredibly complex. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a really complicated system. It's really tricky to get a sort of high level picture of it, as you said. So I guess, yeah, there's a lot of different answers to your question. Different people are approaching it in different ways.
1: So specifically in how you go about your research, yeah. what trade-offs do you make? How do you go about how you make your measurements?
2: I'm really um, interested in my research in the kind of local processes that are happening in the fjord. And so the project that I'm working on right now is in a place called 79 North Fjord. So it's at 79 North latitude. It's very, very far in the remote northeastern corner of Greenland And the way that we're making measurements there is actually by somebody went and drilled through the floating ice and they were able to put four instruments that are hanging down in the ocean underneath. And then there's a buoy on the surface that was transmitting the data that it was collecting in real time for almost a year. And so that's really cool. We get you know, a nice long ish record of measurements every 15 minutes of the temperature and the salinity and the currents and the ocean underneath that ice, where we've very, very rarely been able to measure any of those things before.
1: Mm only in one spot in the ocean that's one set of sensors
2: Exactly so that's um, we have you know this whole fjord it's okay. 70 kilometers long and 20 kilometers wide and we have four instruments in one spot and so there's <laughs> always a lot of trade-offs I guess or there are assumptions that you have to make in how you interpret your data when you know that you're only measuring like one small corner or one small, one small subset maybe of what's really going on. And I guess the best thing that we can do is try to make sure that we are as careful as we can be about the assumptions that we're making. So Mm. we inform our assumptions with our best knowledge of physics and we're also really transparent about them. So when I publish my paper, I you know I'll say here's where we made our measurements and here's what we don't know about what's going on around and here's what we think it might be let's explain let's explore the other possibilities what could also be going on that we're not capturing
1: yeah that's interesting so ideally if you had hundreds of sensors or thousands of sensors throughout that entire fjord would that even help in your model and simulation or is that level of interaction too complex
2: i think you know having more observations will always help but the other thing is that we you know as scientists maybe just as humans we will always want more so you know, yeah, I could have a hundred of them going across, you know, what the fjord in one direction and I would be thrilled. And then I would look through those data and I would say, but you know, yeah. we should really get, you know, 600 going along the fjord in the other direction and like, you know, 15 outside and
1: <laughs> down as well. I mean, yeah.
2: You can always look for, you know, <laughs> you always can wish for more. But I think on the flip side of that, you know, we always have to really keep the big picture in mind as well. So, you know, for the paper that I'm writing, it's about, you know, this really small, it's, it's about this small part of this, you know, kind of big fjord, but in the grand scheme of Greenland, it's just one of many glaciers that are flowing into the ocean. And then in the grand scheme of sea level rise, it's just one corner of one ice sheet when we actually know a lot about sort of the aggregate picture of sea level rise. And so... Mm. The questions that I'm trying to answer with my research, sure, more data would definitely help. But when you get to the questions of, you know, is climate warming or will sea level rise or... Will sea level rise enough to affect lots of people in communities? We already know that those answers are yes. So I think it's, you know, kind of important to separate the scales. Yeah. There's the, the little questions that I'm asking, but then the big picture, we don't really need more data right now to know that there's some need for action on a lot of these yeah. questions that are related to what we're studying.
1: How generalizable is this one corner of that one fjord? does it represent a broader section of areas yeah. where this is happening or is every single different area unique?
2: That's a great question. That's a question that a lot of my collaborators and people in my group are are trying to answer. But you know, one reason that we try to choose research sites that are either that we expect to be representative of other areas or that we think are in and of themselves some of the biggest drivers of change in a region. So Greenland, if you look at it on a map, it has hundreds and hundreds of these inlets and fjords and places where the glaciers are flowing out into the ocean. But then you can make a, you know, you can write down from most important to least important in terms of how much ice is actually flowing through each one. And you find that, you know, the top, say, maybe, I don't know, the top 30 fjords or something are accounting for the vast majority of the actual ice flow into the ocean. and so that's, you know, we sort of try to prioritize as much as we can and where we choose to study. And so this fjord in particular, 79 North, is actually one of the only three main outlet glaciers for the entire northeastern section of Greenland. And so we do think it's a really important location.
1: Even if you just understand this one better, that that helps helps to a significant extent.
2: Exactly. And because of, you know, what I said before, if you're thinking about this cork in the bottle, the most of the floating ice sheets in Greenland, or excuse me, the floating ice shelves in Greenland have broken up over the last 20 years. And 79 North is one of about three big ones that are still remaining. And so we are really interested in, as long as it's still there, monitoring wow. the ocean underneath it to try and you know, predict whether this thing is going to break up in the future. Um, because we think that it could have a pretty big impact on the ice that it's sort of holding back.
1: So when something like this happens, when the ice starts flowing into the ocean, what impact does that have on two scales? The daily cycles of the Earth, like weather, and then longer term consequences that we're predicting going forward.
2: Yeah. So I think when we are talking about different timescales of change, one concept that I think is really useful in understanding sort of how they interact with each other and why they're both important is this idea of resilience. So if you had like, say you're you're back to your cork in your wine bottle and over like a really long time, your wine bottle might tilt back and forth a little bit. It's moving very slowly back and forth. And then also every year, you know, in the summer, your cork comes out a little bit and in the winter, your cork goes in a little bit. Sometimes your cork might come out all the way, but as long as the bottle is pretty much upright, you can probably get it back in before any of the wine spills. But if you have your bottle tilted all the way over and your cork pops out, you're going to have a mess. And so it's kind of the same thing with these long-term trends and seasonal cycles that if you have, you know, you can have seasonal extremes that don't make that big of a difference if you're in sort of a colder period anyway. But if you are getting into a warmer and warmer sort of base state, and then suddenly you have one really warm year, your whole ice shelf might break apart. And so we find that, you know, an understanding of all of these timescales is really important to sort of to see the interplay between them, how changing sort of base, underlying base state might make your kind of expected and normal seasonal cycles actually push you towards some kind of tipping point. And so that's this, this idea of resilience. If you're far enough away from the tipping point, you can handle like a big swing here and there. But if you're already tipping over, then even a little swing might really make a big
1: difference. So in that analogy, where do you expect that we are? Where does the field expect that we are? How far tipped over?
2: yeah, I maybe I should never even have said the word tipping point because you know, as far as seventy nine north goes in particular, where we know that it's been thinning for about twenty years, eventually it's going to break apart. and you know, when it does, it might be hard for it to grow back again. But I think people are a little bit hesitant about talking about a tipping point and just because of the way that it generally causes people to shut down a little bit and they're like thinking of how they're going to respond to something. And so, If you say, hey, we're, you know, we've passed a tipping point, people might say, ah, yeah, we don't need to, you know, there's nothing we can do now, it's too late. And more importantly, I think the climate system is just super complicated. And there are all kinds of connections between different parts of it that we, you know, we understand some of them better than others. So there are a lot of sort of potential tipping points here and there. And there's never, I don't know, there's never going to be a better time to start trying to mitigate those than now. And if you don't do it now, then there's never going to be a better time than tomorrow. And
1: <laughs> it's
2: just, I, you know, I think while we are interested in sort of knowing where different parts of the system are relative to some of those points, it's also just more important to stop trying to say, oh, well, can I wait until, you know, do we have five more years before we can start and just yeah, sort of start, start to think about how we can be proactive in making changes to mitigate some of those
1: So how does understanding ocean warming and understanding what's going on in these areas play in our quest to reduce or reverse our impact on global warming?
2: (laughs) My answer to this question someday when I finish my PhD is going to be something, you know, like, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, the classic Star Trek (laughs) line. (laughs) I think it is a really important part of sort of predicting the Pace of the effects of climate change, predicting how fast sea level is going to rise, how Greenland is going to change, and also how the change in Greenland is going to affect the ocean circulation that sets the climate in, especially, I mean, in places like Europe, where you guys have nice warm winters relative to the same latitudes in North America because of the Gulf Stream. Mm. That's sort of our role in terms of our research. And then as far as actually acting to reduce and mitigate climate change, you know, we need people to listen to what we're saying so they understand what sort of this the risks and the stakes are. But there are a lot of other people who are a lot more qualified than I am sort of recommend the best courses of action towards really reducing the risk of climate change. And so, But I would say, um, you know, both individual and collective actions on climate change are really critical like you need to you know think about your own decisions in your life but also think about you know voting and finding ways to get structural change to happen and you know if thinking about sea level rise is a helpful a helpful motivator or you know a tangible risk to be trying to avoid then i think that's where our research can be really helpful um, yeah. as sort of providing, you know, it's important to know what the risks are that we're trying to mitigate, especially if we're asking people to make a big change.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah. It's real.
1: <laughs> I like, I like having a tangible example, for sure. Yeah. So what are some other fields that measure other components of the earth or environment that are part of the bigger picture along with what you're researching, that it will help us understand the bigger picture of global warming and how we're influencing the environment?
2: Let's see. One thing that I think is really important is studying past climate, and that's something that comes up a lot when you're talking about ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica, as well as sort of people drilling ice cores to try and measure or to use the air bubbles that are captured in them, sort of measure what the atmosphere was like in the past and understand how climate has changed in the past. Wow. And we you know, we talked about how I always want more data and I always want a longer time series, a longer record of observations. And so that's sort of something that paleoclimate is able to provide is to say, okay, well, we haven't actually been, you know, maybe measuring the ocean temperature since 20,000 years ago, but how else can we find out how it's changed? And so it's a huge, it's super important in giving us more context for how things have changed in the past so we can put our current changes into perspective and you know really understand to what extent we're seeing natural cycles versus uh, human-caused warming. And then the other thing that I think is really important is just people that are working more with communities to really understand the impacts that climate change is having on people because everybody's affected by it. A lot of people are already being affected by it. Everybody will be affected by it and in really different ways and i think that the more sort of we can connect with people on what their actual priorities are and what how it's really manifesting in their lives the more progress we can make on you know mitigating hopefully the worst impacts and making plans to to adapt for the future
1: hmm. It seems like there is a lot that we're able to go out and collect and a lot of different types of ways that we can collect that data. So I like the way that you're going like going out to the community, understanding, hey, what's happening to this fisherman right. every day versus what's happening to, I don't know, somebody lives in a city, how does it impact their life? But all the different ways that we do the research and then the actual practical application of saying, hey, let's act on this. Let's do something. What's missing in our approach in terms of technology, hardware, software, society, whatever it is, and how do we go about changing that in the future?
2: You know, if I knew the answer to that question, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I would be doing it right now. (laughs) I think that one thing that's really understandably making it very hard for us collectively to act on climate change is just that it's really scary. It's a really sort of big unknown Everybody sort of has these really dearly held ideas about what their future is going to be like and what their lives are going to be like, and a lot of that's probably built on you know what we saw our parents' lives were like. And people don't want to give up on that, and so it's a lot easier to just sort of bury your head in the sand when somebody's coming to you and saying, "Hey, actually, we're going to have to make some really big changes, or things are going to get a lot worse." Um, It's really scary. It's hard to know what to do with that information, especially when you know you still have to go to work every day, you still have to you know keep paying your bills, you have to to keep doing a lot of these normal things. And so I think what I'm hoping is going to be really helpful in the future is seeing more. And I guess one of the other problems that we've had is that a lot of the emphasis has been put on individual actions and, you know, going up to somebody and saying, hey, climate change is happening. Can you stop driving your car? And they say, well, no, I can't. I need to get to work. I need to, you know, go buy groceries. How can you expect me to sacrifice To the point where I can no longer, you know, provide for my family. That's ridiculous. And I think we need to really reframe our discussions in a way that where, you know, politicians are talking about how can the government, you know, really start to impose regulations on some of the people that are profiting off of climate change the most instead of individuals being asked to just sacrifice things that are unrealistic for them to give up on. Sorry, I know that's like a bit rambling, but just a reframing of the discussion and Oh, it's good. A bigger, more of a reckoning with who's really responsible and then who's bearing the consequences. Because we have a really big environmental justice problem where the people who mainly have contributed the most to causing the problem are also in the best position to kind of avoid the worst impacts. And so we need to find a way to reframe that so that the people that have contributed the least are sort of being protected and being getting some assistance from the people that have caused the problem in the first place. And hopefully find a way to make it, you know, a more equitable society for everybody in the end. That would be,
1: Absolutely. And the, work you're doing. That'd be the, the dream. Absolutely. I, mean, I
2: certainly hope so. Another thing, <laughs> in addition to affecting a lot of these people that are live in coastal areas who, in many cases, are not wealthy or don't have the means necessarily to avoid these impacts, they're also... A great deal of very, very wealthy communities on the coast, which, you know, living in San Diego, I know very well. And so it's unfortunate, but I also hope that the fact that this is the type of impact that will be, you know, also visited on people that have a lot of power and a lot of wealth, um, I hope that it will help sort of bring people to the table and thinking, okay, how can we fix this for everyone?
1: Great. And what about you? It seems like you have how many years left in your program?
2: I have probably another two, two and a half years.
1: So what do you plan to do either in the next two and a half years or afterwards? What does that look like for you?
2: I'm really excited about the research that I'm doing right now. So I'm definitely going to continue doing some more work on ice-ocean interactions in Greenland one other area of study in Greenland that I'm going to work on after I finish this project at seventy nine North is looking at what happens when icebergs melt in the ocean, which I think is going to be pretty fun, <laughs> but also it plays a big role in how sort of the fresh water that comes from melting is distributed throughout the ocean, and that is going to sort of potentially affect the circulation and the currents down the line. Mm. So that's sort of a slightly different angle on the same thing. I would just say, Going forward, I want to keep working on finding ways to do good research, but also to communicate it to people in a way that makes sense and brings some of the processes that we're seeing in these really faraway places a little bit closer to home.
1: Great. So it seems like the research portion is important, but there's also maybe other ways to interact with people, engage people, the stakeholders who could actually have an impact on this.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Great. So we usually ask this too. We got a little bit into it, but how can the listeners of the podcast support your mission in their everyday lives? And then how would they get more involved if they wanted to?
2: I would say that one of the most important things is just for people to start sort of taking climate change on board as something that they think about when they're making decisions and something that they talk about with their friends. You know, it's really, really much more desirable or it's less scary to just bury your head in the sand. And I totally get that. But the more that people can kind of start talking about it and making it be something that's a part of everyday conversation, the more sort of ability we'll all have to grapple with the real consequences of it and think about what we want to do and what kind of you know solutions we want to look for and what kind of society we want to be going forward, and so I think that's a really important place to start. And then you know, fly less. Don't stop flying altogether, but fly less. Mm. Or most importantly, make sure that you're going out and voting and that you're thinking about who's going to create a more sustainable planet for all of us and all of our grandchildren and all of our polar bears
1: when you do absolutely polar bears are up there yes. <laughs> all right then finally last question we always go through if you're a doctor what sort of emergency should somebody call you
2: i would say if somebody's shaking up your bottle of champagne and the cork's about to blow give me a call <laughs> I-
1: <laughs> because you want to be involved in the party well, but- <laughs> you know
2: ostensibly because i can predict you know how soon the cork is going to blow off and how much champagne is going to spill out when it does but I could maybe help with the cleanup too <laughs>
1: Perfect. Well, Margaret, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I love your mission. I can't wait to hear how the next two and a half years goes and beyond.
2: Well, thank you so much, Colin. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today, we've been talking with Margaret Lindemann about her research studying ice sheet ocean interactions and how they play a role in large-scale ocean circulation and sea level rise. For more information on Margaret, check out our website, somebodycalledphd.com. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing some interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycalledphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.